All right, well, good morning again, and welcome to Providence. And if you're a guest, my name's Joseph Stegall. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are excited that you are here. And if this is your first time, let me just kind of give you a heads up a little bit about some of the things that, that we do that maybe are particular to uh, our church a little bit. And it is that one, one of the things we do is we just pretty much go through books of the Bible. And so right now we're in a series through uh, 2 Kings. Uh, we'll be in chapters 9 and 10 today. It's on page 315 in the black hardback Bible around you. You'll be benefited by grabbing that if you don't have a Bible with you because we're going to read a good bit. But let me tell you why we do that. There's two reasons that are really why we go through books of the Bible. And basically Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. So in January we'll start through the book of Ephesians. But the reason we do that is really two reasons. One is because... Uh, I want to expose you to the full counsel of God's Word. It's all profitable. It's all uh, beneficial for teaching, correcting, training, reproof, and righteousness that the men and women of God might be equipped for every good work. So that's one of the reasons I want to do that. But then the second reason that I want to do that is what that means is I can't dodge hard texts. And so it creates a little bit of legitimacy between us. A little bit of honesty and realness because you know I can't just sit up here and pick, you know, what I want to talk about and dodge different hard things. And so this morning, we don't have something that's like really sticky, like election or divorce or something like that. But we do have kind of a difficult text in that it's filled with death. It's filled with a purging, with God saying, go kill all these people. And so it's a little bit difficult in, in light of, of that. And so sometimes, you know, people will take a story like this or they'll take uh, other stories that are similar to this in the Old Testament and they'll begin to argue that the Bible's holy wars are really no different than Islamic jihads. And so you should, like, Joe, you should stop, you know, trying to persuade people to believe in this God, who's just a moral monster. But that response is just really, really ignorant. You don't know what you don't know, and just bad. It's really, really bad. It's when you begin to dive into the Bible and see like what's going on. Like here this morning, this has nothing to do with God judging those outside of Israel. This is a purge on people inside. Okay, so this isn't outside, this is inside. The leaders of God's people had turned from God. And God had warned them over and over and over and over to repent. So he's shown them mercy. He's shown them patience for years and years and years and years. But they never did. They never turned. They never repented. Instead, what they did is they continued to commit atrocities, injustices against innocent people people murdering hundreds of prophets and they've never been brought to justice for this they're just getting away with it until this text because in chapters 9 and 10 here in second kings we are going to see god hold accountable those within israel who carry out injustice and specifically we're going to see it come through a guy named jehu and so this is not at all a story about a moral monster, but the God who's shown mercy, the God who's shown patience, and now the God who's going to bring justice for all the injustices that have been done to innocent people. 
And so even before we get into the story and I start telling you about it, that, that, that first thing about God bringing justice and being filled with just, that's the first thing I want us to just understand out the get-go this morning. And so number one in your notes, just go ahead and write, God is a God of justice. Okay, God is a God of justice. And we see this all over the Bible, not just here in this text, but all over the Bible. God's justice is talked about 133 times. Okay, I'm going to read 10 of them. Deuteronomy 10, 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, that is immigrant, refugee, that's what that word means, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 27, 19, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say amen. Psalm 9, 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 82, 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 97, 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 106, 3, blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. And so right out of the gate, I want us to see and to understand that God is a God of justice. It's one of his attributes. It's who he is. Okay, so right off the gate, I want us to understand that. And there's also something else we have to understand as we get started this morning. And, and, and that's because verse, chapters 9 and 10 are really like kind of part 2 of a story that began way back in 1 Kings chapter 21. So I've got to give you a little context of that. There's been a 12-year interlude. A lot of things have taken place, but it really is kind of part two of what happened way back there. So what had been going on is you had this evil king named Ahab and his snake wife named Jezebel. They were the king and queen of Israel, and they were awful. They were terrible. They were evil. They worshipped fertility gods known as the Baals, complete with all kinds of crazy, gross stuff that I won't go into. But horrible, like not even close to trying to follow God. Evil, horrible people. Okay. In chapter 21, what happened is they specifically used their political position then to... Um, for personal gain, and they, there's a guy named Naboth, Nabot, and he had a vineyard right next to their palace. They wanted that vineyard for a vegetable garden, okay? And he said, no, I won't sell it. And so they used their, you know, political positions and worked it so that he and his whole family were murdered, and they took that, made it into the vegetable garden that they wanted. Nabot was a good you know, God-fearing, faithful Israelite, they killed him, no value for life, no regard for life at all. And so God sent the prophet Elijah to confront Ahab because God, as always, is on the side of the oppressed. And so Elijah comes and he meets Ahab and he tells Ahab, hey, Ahab, you're going to die. Dogs are going to lick up your blood. 
because of what you've done, the injustice you've done to Naboth as well as what you've done throughout your whole life. In chapter 22, it happens. Elijah had also told Ahab, your whole family is going to be wiped out if they don't turn away from the you know, following as they, they have after the Baals. And he told Jezebel, hey, Jezebel, you're going to get eaten by dogs as well, which in that culture to not be buried was like a huge insult. And so Ahab's been killed. It's been 12 years now, and his wicked family, led now by King Joram, is still running around. But justice is coming. And God's patience is over. And he's ready to act. And so chapter 9, verse 6. Jehu's anointed king by the prophet Elisha, who says this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anoint you, king, and, and God had told Elijah, I'm going to make this a guy named Jehu king. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of, it, over the, people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. All right, he's bringing justice. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and all the house of Baasha, and the, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And so Jehu is made king, all right, and he's in a place where the whole army is. He's in a city where the whole army is. So the whole army sees this, they come, they're like, yeah, yeah, you're our king, you're our king. Meanwhile, King Joram is over here in another city called Jezreel, and the king of Judah, because it's split at this point, Ahaziah is there hanging out with him as well. So they're over there, they don't know what's going on, they don't know that this has happened, they don't know that the army is with Jehu now, all right? And so Jehu, he musters this army, and he heads for Jezreel. And so look at verse 17. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and, Je and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he's not coming back. And he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, He reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously and so you know how i am i always have to picture like a movie when i'm when i'm reading scripture right so i'm picturing maverick top gun right here crazy maneuvers he's reckless he's you know without abandon without you know abandon he feels the need the need for speed so he's driving crazy they know that this is how he drives he's got a reputation for these kind of you know warfare maneuvers they know it's him and so they're like oh shoot here comes jehu verse 21 Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him, get this, note this, 
met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagen, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the, at the ascent of Gur, which is in Iblin. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servant carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb with his fathers in the city of David. And then they give a little detail about when he began reigning. Verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? She's, you know, insulting him. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. And he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. And then he went in and ate and drank, like went into her palace, took over, feed me, here's my men, give them drink. And he said, after a little while, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And when they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. A few more verses. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Remember, he's got to take the whole family out. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne and fight for your, father, for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. And then he wrote to them a second later saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, 
Take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's son, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning when he went out and stood and said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained. In the house of Ahab in Jezreel. All his great men and his close friends and his priests. Until he left him, none remained. So that's heavy. I get all that, right? But at this point, it kind of appears like mission is accomplished, right? He's taken out all the family that he was told to. But then Jehu, and I'm just going to paraphrase for time, he goes further and he just keeps killing people. Far more than God said. He slaughters 42 relatives of Ahaziah just because he feels like it. And he claims it's because I have zeal for the Lord, but he's really got zeal for Jehu. So he slaughters all of those people. And then he does something that's reminiscent, again, movie time, that reminds me of the movie The Patriot. How many of you have seen the movie The Patriot? It's a little bit gory, but perhaps does one of the better jobs of showing how, like, without the French, we would not have won the Revolutionary War. But anyhow, bad scene in that is the Brits that know that there's a town that's been harboring uh, the colonialists. And so they come in, that evil general, and gather them all into the church under false pretenses and then lock the gates, lock the doors, and set the church on fire and kill the entire town. Jehu does basically the same thing. He gathers all the worshipers of Baal into a place, but instead of setting on fire, he has basically like 80 navy seals outside, and he says, okay, go take them out, and they go in and they take them out. And so you get verse 27 and verse 29, and they demolished the pillar of Baal, and demolished the house of Baal, right, the temple, and made it a latrine. That's a toilet. Okay, it's a privy, gross. And made it a latrine to this day. So they turned it into the toilet that it truly was. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. So Baal worship is over. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. So that's the story. So life of a preacher. I read that this week and I'm like, so what am I going to do with that? That's almost entitled the sermon. What do we do with this? But I do think there's a couple of things that kind of are highlights uh, out of this that that are important for us. So we'll do two quick ones and then we'll do one that's the main point of this. All right, so the, the first quick one, which will actually be point two in your notes, you write this down, God's word determines history. God's word determines history. Like that's what you see here. 
You see it over and over and over here. God had said, Ahab, you're going to die. Guess what? He did. God had said, hey, Ahab's family, unless you repent and turn away from the worship of Baal, you're going to die. They didn't do it. So guess what? Justice came on them. He said, hey, Jezebel, dogs are going to eat you just like they did Ahab. Guess what? That's what happens. Okay, friends, politics and power don't determine history. God does. God determines that. What God says, both the happy promises that we cling to and the warning passages that we maybe don't like so much, both of these will happen because God's word determines history. The psalmist says that God is the one who stands up and sits down kings. Daniel chapter 2 says that God removes kings and sets up kings, which should give us all hope regardless of whoever is in power in our lifetimes. It doesn't mean that we don't do anything. It doesn't mean that you know, we fall into like fatalism. But it does mean that God is ultimately in charge. That God is ultimately going to bring justice to evildoers. And that God is ultimately going to work out things for the good of his people. And so God's word determines history. In 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? He gave Jezebel 12 years. And so for us, at times, it may seem slow. It may seem like a flight that's delayed. Like, is it going to take off? Is this justice going to come? And Peter says that whole delay is God giving people a chance to repent. He's being patient and waiting before the final judgment. But then we keep reading in that passage in Peter, as Becca read for us earlier. The day of reckoning will come like a thief. And so we're to be ready for the coming of Jesus because his word determines history. And so the question for us this morning then is to you, are we ready? Are you ready for the skies to crack and Jesus to come? Are you ready? Have you responded to the gospel in faith? And if you have, are you using your days wisely now? Don't be focused on trying to figure out like when he's going to come. Be focused on being ready for him to come. God's word determines history. Right? Number three thing we learn from this crazy story Really short, God's instruments of judgment are still held responsible. God's instruments of judgment are still held responsible. Like Jehu did do some good things in bringing the justice that God wanted him to bring here. But that doesn't mean he's giving a free pass for the injustices that he carried out on his own. Right? I mean, he wiped out Baalism, but he didn't turn aside from Jeroboam's practice of worship. Those golden calves wouldn't have remained in Dan and Bethel if he had desired a true God-centered reformation. And so his zeal was really more about zeal for Jehu than it was zeal for Yahweh. And so, friends, God uses all kinds of prophets and punks for his purposes. He's done it all throughout history. Mysterious purposes. But they are still held responsible for their actions and they will give an account. Right? So those are the two quick ones. 
Now the big one that's like the main point of the text, and we'll wind up with some subpoints on this one, but it's this one. Number four, God's justice is assured. God's justice is assured. Okay, the injustices of this world will be done away with, and God will bring justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And so, friends, God's justice is assured. And again, subpoints here because subpoint letter A, He loves His people. All right, because He loves His people, that's one of the reasons God's justice is assured. He hears the cries of His suffering servants, like Naboth here, the man whose you know vineyard was taken away and his whole family's murdered just so people could have a vegetable garden close to their house. To Ahab, who was Naboth? He was a nobody. And to Jezebel, he was garbage. But to God, he's his child, and he loves him, and so he's going to avenge what's taking place. He's going to bring justice upon the injustice that's been done to his child because God's suffering servants matter to him, including you and I. Like, whatever's going on in your life at times, we've all suffered, you know, to varying degrees and varying weights of things, different, you know, injustices or, or things that aren't right or things that aren't fair. And God, friend, God is not ignorant of those. He's not ambivalent to those. He doesn't know that those, it's not like he's blind to those. And you're like, well, where's the justice? He's being patient. He's being merciful. But justice ultimately will come. Because he loves his people. Justice will come upon the people in Turkey. Christian Kurds are being slaughtered there now. All of a sudden, slaughtered. Justice will come upon those people. North Korea, killing Christians. Justice will come. God will avenge the blood of his people. We see this all over the Bible. For example, in Israel, when they were mistreated by Egypt, God said to Moses, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them. Now, how long were they in Israel? Sunday school time. 400 years. So God plays a long game that we in our little 80-year lifespans can't ever see. And so let's be careful to like try to think that we predict and know what God's going to do. We don't know what God's going to do, but we do know it will be for the good of his people and he will bring justice. We know those things because those are that's his character and his promises. And his word determines history. And so God's justice is assured, letter A, because he loves His people. He hears their cries. He will not let injustice stand. Letter B. It's assured because this is just who God is. And we've already talked about He's just. He's a God of justice. We read all those verses. Just who He is. See, everything in this world is not. Don't believe the lie. It's not relative. A lot of people be like, everything's relative. You know, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. What's bad for you is bad for you. What's bad, you know, it's all relative. That's not true. There is an absolute right and wrong. There is an absolute truth and error. 
And deep down, everybody on the planet knows this, even if they don't want to admit it. Deep down. That's why whenever a school shooting or something horrific like that happens, that's why even the most hardened, relativistic atheist says that's wicked. That's why even the guy who says there's no standard of truth, okay, the guy who says that does not exist in that moment says something's gone wrong here. And some will try to spin it and then say, oh, I can't believe in a God if this is what goes on. I can't believe in a God that would allow such suffering of innocent ones, that would allow such evil and wickedness. But if there is no God, then who's to define what's wicked and what's not? Maybe it's wicked for you, but it's not wicked for me. This is what I like to do. So there's got to be some absolute truth that speaks from the outside into the natural world that says, here's what's right and here's what is wrong. And that is God. From outside the natural world. So it's extra natural, supernatural speaking in. And so the fact that there is evil in the world and we know it's evil and the fact that we want justice and we desire that is because we've been hardwired into us. And so it's actually a strong argument for God's existence that there is an absolute you know, truth and error. It's actually an argument for God's existence, not an argument against him. And so since God is just and since he is God, omnipotent, Omniscient, omnipresent, justice is assured. Just as kind of a side note then. Since God is just, and since we are called to be like him, that means we should be people of justice. Now don't get confused here. You and I aren't Jehu. We have never been called to go murder people. Okay? So let's not get confused here. That's not like we aren't God's chosen instrument of judgment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But nevertheless, we are called to some level of justice. How so? Those verses we read earlier. Those ten verses we read earlier. For the fatherless. For the widowed. For the oppressed. Including those who've been sexually abused. Those in poverty. Those who've lived with the long-lasting effects of systemic injustice because of their race. So the fatherless, the widowed, the oppressed, we're to sow justice to, and the sojourner, all over Scripture, immigrants, refugees, all of these we are commanded by God to care about. I did not say our government is commanded to do something in, so, in some sort of way. I said we, the people of God, are commanded to care for. Again, I get nationally there's laws and there need to be laws and need to be better laws to protect our country and all those sorts. Yes and amen, I get all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the call of Christ on our life. It supersedes any call of country. And it's very different perhaps than the call of political parties. So here I'm going to step on everybody's toes in this room. I feel confident of that. So equal opportunity offender. Political parties primarily just sit around and say hooray for their side. That's what they do. 
Regardless of whether it's right or wrong, just hooray, my side's the best, my side's the best, your side's evil. No, your side's evil. No, your side's evil. We could just disagree. It doesn't have to be evil. But as Christians, we can't give in to that. We don't say hooray for a side. We say hooray for Jesus. That's who we say our hooray for. And so we must live with political blinders in a lot of ways. What I mean by that is we call a spade a spade. If we're going to use these evil terms, then we call evil evil. We call good good regardless of what party it's coming out of. So if it's coming out of our own party that we are preferable for and it's evil, we call it evil. We don't try to spin it and redefine it and say it's something else. If it's good coming out of this other party that we're against, we don't try to spin it and say it's actually not good. We Political blinders. Is this good? Is this not? We don't, we don't have to spin it based upon our preferences politically. We want to judge these things and live with equity. But my fear is that we don't always do this. My fear for those of you who are more politically progressive in here is that you might rightly champion God's call to justice, in theory at least, but you might forget God's call to holiness as it relates to marriage and sexuality. My fear for those of you who are more politically conservative in here is the inverse of that. You might rightly champion holiness, in theory at least, but you might forget God's call to justice beyond abortion. That God's people, we're also to contend for the sojourners, the refugees, those in need, and systemic injustices of our judicial system. All of these. We, we get into either or with stuff and with life circumstances and sanctity of life and things. It's either or. It's either or. Both and. Both and. I think I offended everybody. Though that's not my goal, truly. I'm not in here, oh, how can I offend? My goal is whole counsel of God's word. I tried. And so let's not fall into these fears and these political categories. Let's cut across categories and contend for justice properly with a biblically infused, not party platform infused, consistent gospel-centered life ethic. Let us, Micah 6, 8, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. All right? And so we're to strive towards that, but even if it doesn't come in this life, because we're in a broken world, it won't come fully in this world. We know that. But ultimately, we do know that justice is assured because, A, God loves his people. B, it's just who he is. He is just. And C, Jesus is coming again. It's assured because Jesus is coming again. Right? Because he's coming again, we know that God's perfect and patient justice is assured. See, Jehu, he is a flawed man. He is a sinner. He, he, he. But at the same time, while he is all that, he does serve a purpose in pointing to Jesus in a couple of ways, serving as a type for a minute. Because whereas, Je whereas Jehu was anointed a temporary king, Jesus has been anointed the king of kings. And whereas Jehu is, you know, cleansed the temple of Baal, Jesus cleansed the temple of God. And whereas Jehu had fake zeal for the Lord, Jesus' zeal for God's house 
consumed him. And so God's perfect justice is coming because the true king, the true prophet, the true priest, the true Messiah who lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, will come again, and he will bring the justice. And here's what it will look like. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's not his. Jezebel's blood splattered. This is his foe's blood splattered. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Notice they don't have anything on them. They are. They don't even have to fight. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Dear friends, this King, Jesus, is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he makes war and brings justice to this broken world. And he's coming again with vengeance for his foes. Justice will come. It will come. And so let's take hope in this assured justice that is to come as we face the injustices of this world. But let's also contend for what we can do now as salt and light in a dying world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is good. And it is profitable. Every word is God-breathed. Every word is given from you for us. And Father, we should often come to your word and be rattled. Come to, our, come to your word and be, mm, I don't like this so much. Because we are not inerrant. We are fallen. But you, your word is inerrant and perfect. And so, Father, help us to seek to conform ourselves to your word and not seek to conform your word to ourselves. Let us live in holiness and purity before your word. Let us seek to do that, Lord, because we know that all of us are hypocrites. We all struggle with this, Lord. And the problem is not actually being a hypocrite. It's not knowing that we are. It's not seeking to repent and change and turn. And so, Father, in these moments as we're praying, would you open our eyes to parts of our hypocrisy? Would you change us? Not just now, but bit by bit by bit. Across our lifetimes, God, we, as I was talking with my kids this week, are like blocks of stone that you see inside a statue 
And week by week, drip by drip, sitting under your word, you chisel away that stone to expose what you're trying to expose underneath. Let us be open to letting you take a chisel at times and a jackhammer at times. That we might be transformed into the image of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.